This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Trish Harkins from Dublin, Ireland, and I'm reporting on behalf of Room Now at ACR 2022. Today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Professor Satu, who, as many of you know, is an Associate Professor at the University of Pittsburgh, as well as Director of the UPMC Vasculitis Centre. So today, Professor Satu has very kindly agreed to discuss this abstract with us, um, abstract number 044, which is entitled The Prevalence of Frailty and Its Associated Factors in Patients with Vasculitis. And he will be presenting this on Saturday, November 12th at the conference. Uh, so first off, I'd like to thank you, Professor Satu, for uh, taking the time out of your extremely hectic ACR uh, scheduled to join us today to have a chat. Thank you so much for the invite to talk about this. I think it's um, it's an exciting and, and newish topic in rheumatology overall, certainly even more so in vasculitis. So I'm, I'm always happy to have the opportunity to chat a little bit more of why I think we should pay more attention to it. I think it's something that certainly resonates and it's important for patients as well, which I think it's 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 the nice thing, particularly of, of the VASC Strong study, which is how actually our patient partners actually named the study in the VPRN. Um, it's a topic that resonates a lot. It's I think it's a topic that is important for patients that it probably englobes a lot of the things that they see affecting in their daily life uh, that we certainly don't necessarily conceive within our specific disease manifestations, right? Um, so glad to talk about it. Brilliant. Um, and I suppose even just feeding into that, I suppose frailty is a relatively new concept in the field of rheumatology. So I was just hoping even for anyone who's tuning in, if you could describe what frailty means to you, like how would you define frailty? Because I know there's a million different definitions and I suppose con- preconceptions about it. Mm-hmm. So if you wouldn't mind just define it, how you see it. Sure. So I think specifically, frailty usually has a very negative connotation, right? But I think as as physicians, the way we see it is frailty refers to a syndrome, a syndrome that talks about our ability to, just putting in simple terms, our ability to bounce back from different stressors, right? This physiologic reserve that we all have, that sure, it is conceived to actually decline with with time, but at the same time, we know that it's not necessarily a synonym for age by any means. And this ability that we have to bounce back is affected by multiple things, by things that happen throughout our life. There's certainly an association with chronic inflammation that makes it even a more important topic in the in the context of rheumatology uh, and you know comorbidities and other things that happen throughout our process of, of life. So it's this bounce back ability that we need to certainly try to identify because as we know, and our patients constantly remind us, uh, they this they are affected by how what happens to our disease, what happens with the treatments, what complications come with it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frailty is associated importantly, not only with, you know, sure, mortality and morbidity as well, but it's also uh, importantly associated with disability, uh, with worse quality of life. A lot of things that are important that we now that we incorporate more patient reported outcomes as well is is a, a syndrome itself that englobes many of the things that we're trying to improve for our patients many of the damage that we're trying to minimize and many of the the, the things that we try to improve just for, for better quality of life great i think even that last sentence just summarizes that <laughs> uh, beautifully uh, but back to your abstract so if you could just briefly go through i suppose the method methodology of it and the pertinent mm-hmm. results from it 
Wonderful. Yeah. So, so the the abstract and the vast strong study, which uh, which is the vast uh, again the vascularized strong study, is actually based uh, and uh, in the VPPRN. The VPPRN is the vascularized patient powered research network, which is an internet based cohort of patients. and it collects data periodically uh, with regards to disease-specific medications and even patient-reported outcomes as well and health and with regards to health-related quality of life. The what we did for the for Vastrong's the Vastrong study is we actually queried patients and we use the frail scale. So the frail scale is a self-reported, very simple, takes less than five minutes um, tool that uh, that leads to identifying and classifying frailty based on the fulfillment of this of this five criteria and classifying patients uh, patients or individuals as either robust pre-frail pre-frail depending on how many of this criteria they meet um, this so patients were actually asked about this we asked collected medication information about medications about their disease phenotypes there and different aspects of it as well and we just measured the prevalence of frailty and actually measure also assess the correlation with health-related quality of life measures. And specifically, we're looking into factors that were um, more associ associated with frailty. So what we found is we found a high as expected, again, and these are patients who have had the diagnosis for a certain amount of years. So this is not at the beginning of, of disease, at least for most of the, the patients in the VPPRN. But uh, frailty was quite common. And it was it certainly differed in its prevalence between and you know, the ANCA patients are particularly the, the majority of the of the group, but certainly we have patients with takayasus, we have patients with urticarial vasculitis who also participated. And there's most of, uh, pre, bottom line is prevalence, the prevalence of frailty was high among the whole, whole cohort, but certainly even like when you look into specific subtypes as well. If frailty was not surprisingly associated with a worse health-related quality of life in multiple of the domains as measured by PROMISE. And we actually found an association with frail, uh, between frailty and female sex um, and specifically obesity. So either or, um, kind of overweight and, and, and obesity, which is important because when we usually conceive of frailty, we actually talk about weight loss, right? And unintentional weight loss. But the fact is that our patients are on steroids. And this is, and this, this concept of, you know, thin does, or cachectic, sure, it does probably, we don't necessarily see it, but most of our patients we know have are, are, have issues with weight because of it, but it's probably more of sarcopenic obesity that we're potentially capturing as well. Uh, so it, it, it is a change of what we kind of conceive and just over what we would conceive in general population. And there's some specific kind of, you know, factors that are different in our patients, but are certainly something to kind of keep in, in, in mind. Um, that's kind of a, that this, that this baseline analysis in a nutshell. Uh, that being said, the second phase of the Vastron study, which, question, is, yeah. which is actually, which is <laughs> actually nice into it. <laughs> exactly, which the data is being collected right now is it's a one year follow-up of the 300 plus patients who, who participated, who are actually eager to participate. And that's again, the, the nice thing of, of, PPPRN, this is patients are in 
the kind of the front seat and they're actually driving a lot of the the the, the research in, in this network is collecting data on specific outcomes. So what has happened in this last year uh, with regards to hospitalizations, with regards to vasculitis flares, with regards to infections, with regards to fractures. So, okay, we know what that, that frailty is prevalent. We know that um, what factors that might be associated to. And we've certainly expanded a little bit that on the, on the analysis for the manuscript, but we need to know what it means as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in order to start planning, okay, who do, wh what does it mean for patients? How it is affecting them? And what, what factors, who is at higher risk? Certainly frailty is also dynamic and we're actually capturing frailty as well in the, in the like frailty measures in the follow-up in order to start thinking of how we intervene how we actually identify who's at higher risk, what does it mean for them with regards to disease specific and how we can actually minimize or ameliorate frailty in our patients. Yeah, well, it's so exciting. Um, and thank you so much. I think that's covered it absolutely perfectly. Um, I think frailty is so important. I think we're just at the beginning. Um, thank you so much for all your work in it. I'm so excited uh, to follow your future work in it as well. Um, and again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us today. Uh, thank you as well for anyone who might have tuned in. Um, I'd encourage everyone to sus subscribe to Room Now and follow us all on Twitter for all things ACR 2022. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm reporting the ACR 2022 with Room Now, and I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm attending ACR virtually, but I wanted to share with you abstract 0939. And this abstract um, is by Dr. Patricia Dar and her colleagues. And what they're doing is they're using uh, a new tool in order to screen cervical health in lupus patients. This is a pilot study. And what it is was that they took 30 non-pregnant women with lupus um, between the ages of 18 to 50. Now, I want to emphasize these patients were not pregnant and they were willing to do vaginal self-sampling um, using like a pap smear brush that they use the pap compound, but not necessarily brushing the cervix. So about... Um, 40% of the study participants had a lupus nephritis with more than 80% of them taking corticosteroids, hydroxychloroquine or other immunosuppressants. Now these women were interviewed um, and surveys were administered looking at their sexual health, their sexual history, um, cervical health, whether or not they've had cervical cancer or abnormal pap smears, knowledge about HPV and opinions about using um, a self-sampling brush to do this. The vaginal samples were obtained by the participants. It was processed and read by a cytopathologist. And despite the absence of quality indicators, meaning that there's no cervical cells, as well as um, indications of other quality measures, the samples actually showed pretty good preservation of morphology. Four out of the 30 samples exhibited abnormal findings. So this includes low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions and atypical squamous cells of unknown significance. Now, these patients were referred on to see the gynecologist. The patients found that the self-sampling was easy and that it was very comfortable, and many of them would actually self-sample compared to doing the traditional pap smears, which could be pretty uncomfortable. So while additional studies are needed to evaluate the sensitivity, specificity, um, positive and negative predictive value when doing vaginal self-sampling compared to the traditional pap smear, there's actually a huge take home message from this abstract. 
So the reason why the study really impressed me so much is that it's not just a novel approach to cervical cancer screening, but it was the data collected about these women. You know, and as rheumatologists, we're, we're so busy about trying to take care of the rheumatic diseases that we totally forget about, you know, addressing the patient's other needs and educating them about sexual health and reproductive health. And so what the study authors collected in terms of their data was that they found that 70% of these women actually had an STD that's not HPV. And then only 16% had ever been vaccinated for HPV. Now, some of these women were actually pretty young. The mean age was about 30, 39. Um, and then the average number of lifetime sexual partners for these patients is about 9.5. But then only 26% of them actually use condoms or any kind of barrier method. And additionally, about 70% of the patients have had prior history of cervical cancer, um, but very few of them actually went in for routine um, evaluation by a gynecologist. So most of the participants actually had um, understood that HPV can cause cervical cancer, but very few of them were actually aware that HPV can cause oral, pharyngeal cancers, genital cancers, and warts. And in that study, they found that 33% of these women, that's a third of them, had genital warts, and three of uh, 23% of them had prior oral warts. And so this is an important area that is lacking where we need to educate our patients to protect themselves because we know that immunosuppressants can accelerate the development of cervical cancer as well as um, different vulvar cancers, penile cancers, oropharyngeal cancers, particularly when it relates to HPV. And our patients actually, um, you know, they're trying their best that they just need a little bit of hand-holding and also a little bit of education in order to protect themselves. So this is Dr. Catherine Dow uh, reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hello, everyone. I'm uh, Richard Conway reporting from Dublin, Ireland, virtually uh, from ACR Convergence 2022 for Room Now. I'm here to talk to you today about a poster presented at uh, Saturday's poster session. This was poster number 0470 presented by Christ et al. This um, was a follow-up study to the Gusto study. So uh, Gusto, we previously saw the 24-week data presented at ACR 2020. We've seen a publication of the 52-week data in Lancet Rheumatology, and now we have the 104-week data, so two-year um, follow-up. Gusto was a trial in giant cell arteritis, and it was a trial of ultra-low-dose steroids um, with uh, tocilizumab. So these patients, uh, they got three days of steroid only. For that three days, they got high amount of steroid. They got IV methylpertinicillone, but then the steroid stopped completely. And this was given with tocilizumab on a weekly basis um, for one year. And then the tocilizumab was also stopped. And we now have follow-up data a year off the tocilizumab, so a year off everything. Just a reminder of the week 52 results. So at week 52, there are only 18 patients included in this trial overall, but at week 52, 13 of those were in relapse-free remission. So after getting three days of steroid and a year of tocilizumab, 13 of the 18 patients had not um, relapsed. Those 13 patients then went into this 52-week follow-up 
with no treatment. And after this 52 weeks, 12 of the 13 are still in relapse-free remission. So only one patient has relapsed over that year of no treatment. That one patient relapsed at week 72. It was a minor relapse and it responded to reintroduction of tocilizumab monotherapy. So no steroids uh, given again. For me, uh, this is, well, this is very preliminary data. This is very exciting. This suggests that perhaps we can get away with um, giving far less steroids um, than we're used to uh, giving in giant arthritis. GIACTA study has already changed this to some extent. So we've gone from 52-week or, or even longer steroid regimes to 26-week steroid regimes when given with tocilizumab. Um, but this uh, quite early data suggests that maybe we could get away with uh, giving far less steroid, um, certainly in some proportion um, of patients. So again, the bottom line here is that over half of these patients did fantastically well uh, with this very short uh, steroid uh, regime, um, with two thirds of them being in relapse-free rem remission two years um, after their treatment started and one year after all treatment uh, stopped. So log into room now for more uh, news and updates from ACR 2022 and follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting virtually for Room Now from ACR 2022. I'm here to you today to talk to you about a poster that was presented uh, on Sunday's poster session by Meng et al. This is poster 1207. It was risk factors for major cardiovascular events in inflammatory arthritis, time-dependent analysis, um, of inflammatory burden, DMARDs, NSAIDs, and steroids. Now, you may remember this uh, same group presented a somewhat similar uh, study at ACR 2021, uh, which I've also talked about. That study was one of 200 psoriatic arthritis patients. And in that, they showed that uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories appeared to be associated with a decreased uh, cardiovascular um, risk. Uh, so they're back again with another uh, study now. And the background to, to all of this is that we know that in the healthy population, that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are associated with a small but significant risk of cardiovascular disease. We also know that our inflammatory arthritis uh, conditions are associated with an increased cardiovascular risk. So the concern is that these um, non-steroidal drugs, which are symptomatically helpful for our patients um, and they, they like uh, to take them uh, sometimes, that potentially they could be associated with quite a significant uh, cardiovascular risk um, in our population. So um, in this study, um, the authors have come back with a, with a much bigger study. So 200 patients the last time. This time they have 17,732 participants. They have inflammatory arthritis patients with rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and axial spondyloarthritis. It's a retrospective observational population-based study. It's looking at the first uh, MACE in these patients and the role of time-varying CRP and ESR and medications in predicting uh, MACE using multivariable Cox uh, regression. This study um, had a median follow-up of 8.7 uh, years for the participants. There are 1,069 MACE events in the study.
And there are a number of um, interesting findings. So in terms of things which decreased um, your risk of cardiovascular um, events. The hazard ratios I'm going to give you here, they're all a little bit variable because there are a number of different models in the study, but mainly we're focusing on the rheumatoid arthritis patients um, and looking at the model that included CRP rather than ESR. Um, so what they found was that metatrexate was associated with a decreased risk of cardiovascular events with a hazard ratio of 0.75. Somewhat similarly, both COX-2 inhibitors and uh, non-selective NSAIDs were associated with decreased risk of cardiovascular events with haz hazard ratios of 0.77 and 0.79, respectively. They did not find a similar effect for biologic DMARDs or for sulfasalazine. They also found a number of things which increased your risk of cardiovascular disease, and most of these are probably not surprising. So medication-wise, steroids are bad, has a ratio of 1.7. CRP was associated with increased risk, probably as a correlate of disease activity, relatively small hazard ratio of 1.1. And then in terms of traditional risk factors, so lipids, hazard ratio of 5, hypertension, hazard ratio of 3.7. So they're, they're the big ones. Um, then other typical ones, so male uh, sex has a ratio of 1.4 and diabetes has a ratio of 1.2, so not so big. Uh, disease duration has a ratio of 1.1 and age has a ratio of 1.05, uh, so smaller effects. Overall, my uh, takeaway uh, from this study is that this uh, gives some support to the hypothesis that actually we can be a bit more comfortable using NSAIDs in our patients if they have active um, inflammatory disease, that perhaps by reducing that inflammatory disease, um, they do not carry the same burden of cardiovascular risk as they do in uh, people who do not have a systemic inflammatory disease. Um, Please uh, log into Room Now for more updates from ACR 2022 and follow me, uh, Richard P.A. Conway, uh, on Twitter. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm at the ACR 2022 meeting. Actually, I'm watching it from Dallas. Anyways, I'm reporting for Room Now, and I wanted to share with you this abstract. It's abstract 0725, and it's a retrospective study about whether or not you should repeat the ENA panel, particularly if it's negative. And that's a question that we all wonder because, you know, in our choosing wisely initiatives and trying to cut costs, repeating the ENA panel, we don't know the cost effectiveness of it. So for the first time, this is a retrospective audit. This was actually um, done by the, the Monash University in Australia. And what they did was they looked at all patients who've had an ENA result. And they found that there were 23,000 ENA testing from over 19,000 patients between the time period of 2013 to 2020. 89% of the time, the ENA panel was negative with 0.9% equivocal. So that leaves us with about 10% of the tests or 2,300 tests being positive. Row antibodies, especially row 52 antibodies were the most commonly found ENA. So that's about 51% of the samples. And then about 13.4% of the samples had more than one ENA test performed. And so they look specifically at these tests. So the patients who've had more than one test, 
So what they found was that over 95% of them, the results were stable. It didn't change. It was positive before, it'll remain positive. It was negative before, it'll remain negative. There's only 2.2% that actually change from negative to positive. And if you were to exclude patients with pre-existing rheumatic disease, that's only five new results. You know, five new results out of 23,000 ENA testing. It's not worth it. So here it is. Do not repeat the ENA panel again, particularly in somebody with the same kind of symptoms. You're not going to find anything new. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Trish Harkins from Dublin, Ireland, and I'm reporting on behalf of Room Now from ACOR 22. Today, I'm going to be discussing abstract number 0477 entitled Can Beta Blockers Prevent Aortic Dilatation in Patients with Giant Cell Arthritis and Large Vessel Vasculitis? This will be presented by Deboisson and colleagues on Saturday's poster session at ACOR 22. When we are in clinic and we have a new patient diagnosed with GCA with large vessel vasculitis, one of the things that we warn patients about, and indeed one of the things that we as their treating physician are most concerned about, is the development of aortic dilatation, aneurysm formation, and ultimately rupture. While significant strides have been made in the identification of large vessel manifestations of giant cell arthritis, much still remains unknown, including how to best attenuate the development of aortic complications. This is why abstract number 0477 by Deboisson and colleagues really caught my attention. They performed a retrospective study of 65 consecutive patients with newly diagnosed GCA with large vessel manifestations. 15 of these patients, so 23%, were on beta blocker therapy prior to study commencement and they remained on beta blockers for the duration of the study. This left an additional 50 patients that were not on beta blocker therapy prior to the study and indeed remained off beta blocker therapy throughout the duration of the study. The study investigators attributed a vascular risk score to each of the participants based on cardiovascular risk factors and or cardiovascular events. The investigators then analyzed patients' first scan and their last scan and assessed for any evidence of new aortic dilatation. What they found was that 15 patients, so 23% of patients, had evidence of new aortic dilatation between their first and last scan. What was most interesting about these patients is that none of these patients were on beta blocker therapy. Or to put it another way, all patients who were on beta blocker therapy in the study did not develop any new aortic dilatation. It's also worth noting that the vascular scores of those who did develop aortic dilatation were not higher than those who didn't develop aortic dilatation. So this is the first study to provide support for the use of beta blockers in addition to conventional management to prevent uh, aortic dilatation in those with newly diagnosed GCA with large vessel vasculitis. Although the study is small and retrospective, in my opinion, it does provide good food for thought for the routine use of beta blockers in this patient cohort. I really look forward to future larger prospective studies that assess this. 
So thank you all to everyone who listened today. Um, I'd like to encourage you all to subscribe to Room Now and follow us all on Twitter to keep up to date with all things ACR 2022. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm reporting on the ACR 2022 meeting for Room Now. And I have with us today a very special guest, Professor Eric Moran, who is the head of the School of Clinical Sciences and head of the Monash Health Rheumatology Unit. He also founded the Monash Lupus Clinic, and I'm so excited to have him with us today. Welcome, Eric. It's great to be here, Catherine. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the abstracts that you're going to be presenting, it's abstract 2054. It's titled Towards a Novel Clinician-Reported Outcome Measures for Lupus, Outcomes of an International Consensus Process. So this is actually like a new treatment response measurement tool for lupus. Could Uh you tell us a little bit about this and why it's so important? Yeah, sure, Catherine. So we all know that uh, doing successful clinical trials for lupus has been very difficult uh, ever since we started trying to do it. Uh, Part of the reason is the well-known clinical heterogeneity of lupus, the biological heterogeneity of lupus, issues with study design, stereotyper, patient variability, etc. But we also know that one of the measures is the outcome measures. So uh, traditionally in lupus trials, what's been used is the SRI4, which is based on the SLEDI, and the main driver of improvement is a four-point change in SLEDI score, or the BICLA, uh, which is based on similar tools, but just with different um, orientation, and you require an improvement in all bilag domains, uh, and and they also have ways to capture no worsening. So they have uh, worked. We've had uh, 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 belimumab approved uh, using the SRI4 originally. Uh, Not many people remember that the SRI4 was actually derived from the belimumab phase two data. The original phase two trial for belimumab was negative, uh, but the uh, authors uh, combed the data to try to find categories of patients who looked like responders and measures of improvement that looked like a measure that worked. And that became the SRI4, and it's worked for every belimumab trial since then. It's worked for very few other trials, however, uh, and famously, uh, the TULIP 1 and 2 trials were discordant in their results for SRI4, although concordant in results for the BICLA measure. And these were identical phase three trials using the same compound, anafrolumab. Uh, we're lucky that anafrolumab ended up getting approved because of the totality of evidence, but actually it was a narrow thing uh, because that primary outcome measure, SRI4, uh, uh, was negative in the TULIP 1 phase three trial. So uh, while there remain many reasons for this, uh, we're quite sure that the, these tools actually are part of the problem. So the reason for that is that they the, the SLEDI and the BILAG both go back to about 1990 or 92 when they were first, first described. And although they've had improvements since then, and although they were derived from you know, a very uh, uh, hardworking consensus process, uh, they were not designed actually to be used in clinical trials. They were used as uh, for using cohort studies to measure disease activity you know, over time. Uh, and so on. They weren't specifically designed to measure response to therapy. So they've been um, hijacked into uh, this role to measure response to therapy, uh, for which they were not designed. Um, They have performed, you know, the results are mixed. And uh, we think that uh, the time is right for a dedicated effort to make a response measure that's just designed for one thing, which is measuring treatment effect in a clinical trial. Because uh, we we still need more treatments for our lupus patients, as you know, Catherine. Uh, 
Uh, we've got a long way to go to get better outcomes from our patients. We're, no, absolutely. We can't afford, and it, we can't it, afford to keep having trials that fail due to it, basically to uh, a problem that we caused because we're the ones who make up this measure. Uh, the biology of the lupus is the biology of lupus and the molecular target is the molecular target, but the measures are made up by us. So it's up to us to get that right. Yeah, I've been involved in quite a few of the clinical lupus trials and it was so frustrating. Um you know, because you can see a treatment response. And these patients, though, you know, are on such high background medicine. So then you don't see the treatment effect. Mm -hmm. um, so how how exactly um, are you going to derive all these definitions of what yeah. you would deem appropriate? Yeah. Thanks, Catherine. So um, what we decided to do, uh, well, when we, when we began, uh, we started talking to colleagues and also to industry uh, partners, because uh, it's it's our patients and us and uh, and the pharma companies that need this uh, better tool. Uh, so it's sort of all of us who need it and all of us have to work together to get it. And we started thinking of this chiefly as a scientific project. And my own feeling was that this would be potentially quite uh, doable if we borrowed from a very good measure like the ACR 205070, which uh, has stood the test of time and worked great, given us fantastic medicines to use in our RA patients, and is based on using continuous variables like swollen joint count or um, CRP, uh, measuring percentage change from a baseline, and the baseline is that patient's baseline, and every patient has their own baseline. So we don't do any of those things when we do lupus clinical trials. We don't use individual baseline, we don't use continuous variables, and we don't use uh, percentage change. So we started to wonder, what if we took that approach and looked at things that we do actually measure in lupus, like a joint count, uh, or a sed rate, or a platelet count, or a proteinuria, these are continuous variables. Uh, uh, they would be able to be measured in a similar way to what we've just described for the ACR 205070. Uh, is that something that we could do? So that was our starting point. But then we realized um, that actually to do it right, we needed to actually throw away uh, our starting point ideas and start with a blank page. And so that's what we've done. And in this abstract, we describe a process wherein We've gathered a consortium of uh, clinical academic lupus experts, uh, experts from uh, 10 pharma companies involved in uh, lupus drug development, uh, leadership from the Lupus Foundation of America and Lupus Europe, representing patients, a very robust governance committee, including a patient advisory panel, um, scientific advisory board steering committee. And that group of people have set around designing a method to come up with a new measure for lupus clinical trials. So even though we've started with some ideas, we've actually set them aside and focused our attention instead in trying to have a robust scientific methodology to go from a blank page to a measure that works using the best possible evidence, expertise, and you know, a Delphi consensus methodology, nominal uh, consensus techniques, and just try to be really methodologically uh, robust. And I noticed that you've had some pretty heavy hitters in the world of lupus. Uh -huh. um, how hard was it to get all these people to come together? Because you have people from North America, Latin America, Asia, Australia. So uh -huh. the time zones are different. You know, yeah. the opinions are different. They're very strong willed. <laughs> how was yeah. that like? Uh, actually, it's great. Um, we found that there's been a strong agreement of uh, on the need. And there's been a kind of a rallying behind the idea of being uh, just really agnostic to what the outcome looks like. It's not my measure or your measure. No one's bringing their measure. 
uh, we're, we're going to use a, a process, a collective uh, process uh, to get to the point we need to get to. Uh, I need to point out that we also have regulatory experts, and that turns out to be a hugely important part of the process. And I'll talk about that in a second if you want me to. Um, so actually bringing people together, uh, you know, I think everybody wants this. And if you lay out a robust methodology with strong governance, and it's a really a partnership, uh, people are interested to spend their time. In terms of the time zone, uh, I mean, I'm from Australia, and we're used to having to get up in the middle of the night to meet um, other people's time zones. So that's what we do. Uh, it's definitely challenging to have Europe, Asia, North America, uh, South America. But actually, we wanted to have global representation uh, from uh, lupus clinicians, global representation from uh, companies involved in developing medicines. And now we have global representation on our patient advisory panel as well. You know, un underrepresented non-European ancestry people is an issue in, in clinical trials. It's an issue in research. And we, we just wanted to cover that base as well. That's what I thought was the very strong point is the representation from the diverse background. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned regulatory experts. Was the FDA yeah. part of this? And what other regulatory um, yeah. governance was involved? Well, what we've realized in the end is that um, we could do the best science in the in the world and come up with some kind of amazing, highly effective discriminatory measure. Uh, but if regulators like the FDA don't like it, we wasted our time. Because in the end, for, for a company to have a product approved, they need to do a trial with a measure that the FDA approves before they commence the trial. So right now, the FDA approves the SRI and Vicla for, for lupus trials. Notwithstanding the issues that are there, uh, we'll need to provide high quality scientific proof that we've got something better. And we need the FDA and the European agency, the EMA, and all the other national uh, regulatory agencies to uh, get on board. So uh, we've uh, uh, engaged some uh, regulatory experts, some ex-FDA people actually are on our um, steering committee. They are guiding us about how to get it right. Even the wording is special. Uh, for um, regulatory documentation. I've learned phrases that I never used before, like concept of interest and context of use. And in our abstract, we define our methodology that we've yielded definitions for those two things for our process. Uh, and uh, what we're about to do, <clears throat> actually right after I get home from the ACR, we're going to be formally writing to the FDA uh, with uh, an outline of our proposal. They actually have a process to look at new measures. They have an evaluation process that we're going to engage in. And what we hope to do <clears throat> is to get the FDA not across the table, but around the table. So we actually work with them. So we're about to reach out to them. And if anyone is watching uh, from the FDA, please contact me. Um, we, we need to do that first with the biggest agencies that are so influential in having um, uh, drug approvals, that Europe and the US. But in the, in the end, that'll need to be replicated around the world. Um, but I guess we can't do everything at once. Now, I know that you're using the PICO-C framework um, mm -hmm. to develop this tool. Mm -hmm. And the consensus is actually pretty high across the board. Um, mm -hmm. But the lowest one was actually the patient item. Mm -hmm. There's 64 items. Mm -hmm. And the consensus is, I believe, 81%, whereas all the others were above 90% or even 100%. Yep. Yep. Will you talk about that? What what happened? Yeah. Uh, well, so we 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 used the PicoC framework uh, to to for one specific task was to which was to define um, this conceptual definition. Uh, uh, so uh, 
what we understand now in order to, cap to meet the regulatory requirements is we start with a conceptual definition of what we're trying to do. And after that, we lay upon the kind of methodological, operational, mathematical uh, components, which won't be done with PicoC. That'll be done with other other techniques. So uh, um, the we said we had a preset uh, consensus threshold of seventy percent to be acceptable. So eighty percent was fine. That uh, we had a kind of a priori gate of seventy percent consensus to move forward. So we weren't worried by having eighty um, percent. You know, these consensus processes, uh, humans are involved. And um, at the longer we did the P first, and we did the, you know, we did them in order, and uh, I think we got to know each other better, and um, you know, we, we kind of concepts that we came up with, we, we did our job better, and we got higher levels of consensus as we went through the process. So I think that's not unusual for this kind of approach, and uh, we think those numbers are fine. Part of me felt like you were so tired by the end. You're like, oh, what the heck. <laughs> Well, I hope not. I hope not. And we don't. We have to try to resist that sort of thing, right? Uh, right. Uh, we have to try to. We have to work really hard to resist that because this is. I mean, why hasn't this been done before? Because it's hard, actually. Uh, this is a lot of work. Uh, the process that we've just com completed is a survey of physicians and patients uh, for the domains that they consider important in their disease, in the disease lupus, not how to measure it or what change looks like, but just what is important. And that was an uninformed um, survey. Uh, we've got a long list of items when we're about to do a massive series of literature reviews uh, to find evidence for whether or not there is evidence supporting the importance of those things in terms of what the FDA refers to as how a patient feels, functions or survives. And the language of the FDA uh, is extremely patient-centric. Um, the, the movement is really strongly away from what does the doctor think to how does the patient feel. And so we we are we have strong engagement with uh, patient organisations and directly with patients on our um, patient advisory panel. And there are patient members on each of our um, steering committees as well. Uh, so we will be driving strongly towards this idea of the patient at the centre of the story. And I think that's going to give, give us a measure that's really different to what we've done before. Well, that's okay, because what we've been doing before hasn't always been working so well. That's so important. And that's why I really love the fact that you all have gotten together to formulate this tool. Um, because I believe in the abstract, it says, we're not just going to be measuring disease activity, but we're measuring treatment response. And this right. is patient-centered. Right, exactly. So we are not trying to measure to design a new disease activity score. Not at all. We, a side product might be a disease activity score, but that is not our goal. Our goal is to measure delta uh, in response to, to therapy in the context of a placebo-controlled trial. So that is our, that's our single focus. <clears throat> now, it might be possible that such a tool could also be used in clin everyday clinical practice, or it might be possible that such a tool would find a use in cohort studies of disease activity, but we don't want to kind of pollute uh, the our agenda with those possibilities, because we might get distracted from doing the one thing that we need to do. And, uh, you know, it's science, so we don't know the result yet. We don't know whether we're going to succeed, uh, but we don't want to, we don't want to fail for lack of trying. Right. How will you validate the tool? Yeah. So um, the uh, abstract describes what we call aim one of our project, and it has three aims. Aim one is to basically come up with the novel measure. Uh, we'll be reporting further out 
outcomes of our consensus process over the next uh, year at the next upcoming meetings. Once we have the draft measure, we'll then be working with our industry partners to validate it in trial data sets, which we don't have, which we don't have access to, uh, but which the companies have committed to go away, do the work uh, inside uh, their shop on their data, come back with the results and share those results um, with the whole group. And I must say there's been fantastic very open and transparent collaboration between these companies who commercially speaking are competitors uh, but they're extremely collaborative uh, uh, in regard to this including uh, in their commitment to use data um, to help address this so um, aim two of the project will be to use existing trial data sets uh, and new clinical trials because companies are starting new trials all the time so we as the first trial to kick off once the instrument is in draft stage will include this instrument as a, as a uh, exploratory outcome measure. So we'll get real-time data as new trials go forward, as well as look back data using existing trial data sets. And then the third, and I think very important um, aim is to validate this measure in terms of long-term patient outcomes. Uh, uh, because actually for um, SRI and Bicla, there's very little validation that attaining an SRI or Bicla response actually changes your outcome in terms of damage accrual um, health-related quality of life, mortality, and so on. I mean, there is some evidence now in the health-related quality of life that a Bicla responder, for example, um, has uh, uh, improvements in health-related quality of life, but there's not uh, there's not vast amounts of evidence in that space. There's just a bit. So uh, we propose to to uh, uh, reach out to long-term registries to deploy this tool uh, and uh, track patients' response in the real world and see whether it correlates with those outcomes that are so important, like damage and mortality. So those are the three parts. It's going to take a while. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it and, you know, looking forward to hopefully incorporate this tool in future clinical trials that we'll be involved in. So mm -hmm. I want to thank you so much for your time, for allowing me to pick your brain on this, and congratulations again on putting together such an incredible team to produce such an important tool. Thank this is Dr. So much, this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Please follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Hello, it's uh, Mike Putman from uh, the Medical College of Wisconsin. I am reporting live from ACR 2022 uh, for Room Now, and I am excited to be interviewing Dr. Uh, Robert Spira about an abstract that he's given that will be a plenary session. It is abstract number 1676, uh, and it discusses the treatment of polymyodramatica with the interleukin-6 inhibitor sorilimab. I'm very excited to hear about it. Uh, Dr. Spira, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. Uh, my name is Robert Spira. I'm a rheumatologist at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk about this abstract. Well, it's an honor to interview you about this. I uh, first heard about this after ULAR, um, and I think it's a very exciting thing for us who do research in this area to see more things coming down the pipeline and polymyodramatic in particular. Uh, but would you like to tell us a little bit about the study? So who got into the study and how were they chosen? So there have been, as you know, a few studies in polymyodramatica recently published. This was a study that looked specifically at people with refractory polymyalgia rheumatica. So these were patients that had flared within three months of study entry while still on greater than seven and a half milligrams of daily prednisone. So that's a pretty common group of patients in practice that are a challenge. Um, they had long disease, so the median disease duration in these patients was about a year. Um, so it was what we thought was a patient group in whom there was this unmet need. 
Yeah, I uh, always tell my patients, you know, there's a bucket of people who do very well on a steroid taper. There's a bucket who have a couple of uh, blips along the way. And then there's some people who just have a protracted, frustrating course. And so it sounds like you're in that last group for the most part. Yes, that's um, who we were targeting. Uh, and so then why don't you tell us what you found? What was the, uh, the outcome of the study? So it was an interesting study. We hoped to enroll 280 patients. And because of the pandemic and the challenges to recruitment, um, we enrolled 118. Um, and I have to go into the study design a little bit because it was complicated. Do, yeah. So this was a refractory group of patients with polymyalgia rheumatica. <clears throat> the study drug was cerilumab, an IL-6 receptor antagonist. Patients were randomized to receive either cerilumab with a 14-week glucocorticoid taper. So that's a very fast, fast taper yeah. in a refractory group or a more conventional 52-week glucocorticoid taper. Uh -huh. um, and the primary outcome was sustained remission, which was, again, a high bar. You had to achieve remission by week 12. Um, so for the cerilumab arm, you were only at about two milligrams of prednisone at that point. Um, you had to remain in remission from week 12 to week 52. You had to have a normal CRP through the duration of that year. Um, and you had to have adhered to the glucocorticoid taper outlined by the protocol. So again, pretty high bar. And that high bar resulted in what seems like low response rates in both groups, but you have to look into it in a little bit of detail. So in the cerilumab-treated patients, 28% of patients achieved that. In the placebo-treated patients, only 10% of patients achieved that. If you censored CRP, and we all know that IL-6 inhibitors affect CRP, and investigators obviously were blinded to CRP, but in sensitivity analyses, even if you censored CRP, um, you actually had a slightly higher percentage of patients in the cerulimab arm achieve remission, like 31%, and in the placebo arm, about 13%. So it seemed to be not just an artifact of affecting the CRP. What I thought was actually most compelling about the data, you know, we all talk about steroid sparing and why that's important, and yeah. there was a steroid sparing benefit recognized. That was one of our secondary outcomes. So you received um, more than a gram less of steroids, about 1.2 grams less of steroids if you were randomized to cerulimab. Um, but I thought what was more important was the patient-reported outcomes, which, you know, was not one of our primary or even secondary outcomes, but it was among the most important outcomes. So if you look at your SF36 or facet fatigue score or your HAC disability index, all of those favored the cerulimab arm at a statistically significant level. So, you know, one of the things with these steroid-sparing drugs you know, are we just trying to spare steroids or are we trying to meaningfully affect patients' quality of life and function? And I think that piece of it, to me, was super important um, as an outcome. The one other outcome measure, which you know is becoming more and more entrenched in trials in vasculitis and in polymyalgia, is the GTI, um, the glucocorticoid toxicity index. That numerically favored the cerulimab arm, but it didn't reach statistical significance, but that's probably because we under-recruited the trial in terms of the initial powering in terms of 
what would have allowed us to see that. Yeah. You also probably had fewer events in a group with PMR, which started on somewhat lower doses of steroids, so possibly less potential for toxicity. Absolutely. It's a yeah. little bit less of an issue than you might see in a GCA yeah. trial. That makes sense. So I, I love to hear that there are positive patient report outcome measures. That's a particular uh, focus of mine. And uh, you know we saw that in the JAX trial as well, where we saw that the patient report outcome measures were better. And that's one of the main reasons that I think it's an important drug to use. So uh, it's great that we saw that in PMR as well. And interesting. Yeah, I agree 100%. I thought with Jayacta, that was one of our most compelling things. I think we have to show why a difference in steroid use is important. And I think that's been pretty consistent in our steroid sparing drug trials. When we've spared steroids, we have seen those advantages. Yeah, no, I love it. I always say you got to live longer and live better. And if your PROs are better, you're living better. So one final question before I go. You know, this was on a group of relapsing refractory patients. So do you see this expanding or do you think this will be more of a therapy that's limited to people who have failed therapies or failed to respond to therapies up front? So that's an interesting question. You know, in terms of who this trial spoke to, it's to these refractory patients. That's kind of where I think the unmet need is because some patients do do very well. There were other trials, you know, the SPARE trial that was published um, looked at another IL-6 inhibitor, tocilizumab, and in that study, they looked at de novo PMR, so these were not refractory patients, and it seemed to have a steroid-sparing drug. So as a proof of principle, we have a few studies suggesting benefits. Semaphore was another trial of tocilizumab that looked at refractory PMR, a little bit different than this trial in that they allowed remission to be defined as still being on five milligrams of daily prednisone. Um, but I think we have multiple levels of evidence saying this strategy probably is relevant to this disease. Semaphore was with rituximab, correct? Semaphore that was, also was with tocilizumab. Yeah. as well. Okay, great. Yeah, those are the rituximab right there. Anyways, that's all very interesting. Um, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. I'm looking it was a forward. Pleasure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to your plenary. Uh, and be sure to follow with Room Now for more great information from the annual meeting. Hi, Jack Cush, here on the convention floor at ACR 2022. I want to welcome you to the meeting. Welcome you to the Room Now booth, which I have here behind me. You can't miss us if you're walking down any one of the main aisles. Um, again, stop by the booth, meet our people, register for our, our news at our website pick up a pen and other little tchotchke things that we have that will remind you to follow us on Room Now. Hope you're going to enjoy the meeting. Follow our coverage. We got a lot of real-time coverage, which not only includes tweets, but articles coming to you twice a day, a podcast coming to you twice a day, at the end of the day, a daily recap by our faculty, and a topic panel discussion daily, sort of keeping you up to date. Tune in for more at Room Now. Hello, it is uh, Mike Putman uh, reporting live from ACR 2022 for Room Now. And I'm excited today to talk to you about the Vasculitis Investigators Meeting, which is one of these small sub-meetings that happens around the annual meeting itself. And I was figured I'd like to bring some interesting uh, take-homes from what I learned there. Now, one of the things that was talked about and was actually just recently published were the new 2022 ACR ULAR classification criteria for giant cell arteritis. This is a particular passion of mine, and I think it's a very interesting project that's going to be affecting uh, all of our practices going forward. So this was a very large undertaking. It was based on the DC VAS cohort, which is a large international collaboration of vasculitis investigators. What they did is they said, what are the signs, symptoms, and findings that should help you diagnose, uh, classify giant cell arteritis? 
Uh, what they found was pretty much what you would expect. They chose age over 50 as one of the main criteria. And then the classic features that we're all used to seeing, scalp tenderness, elevated inflammatory markers, um, patients with jaw claudication, vision loss, PMR symptoms. So in general, I didn't feel like any of those were practice changing, but I thought it was affirming for how we see giant cell arteritis. Now there are a couple take homes that I want uh, to focus on. The first is that they performed pretty well. The uh, diagnostic, um, uh, the sensitivity was 87% and the specificity was 95% with the caveat being that that sensitivity is on the lower end, correct? Now, that is because these were classification criteria. This is my second caveat, which is that you should always keep in mind when you're reading of these, that these are not explicitly intended for diagnosis. They're meant to create a homogenous population for enrollment into clinical trials. So I think they're useful and helpful from a teaching perspective and certainly helpful in moving disease forward from a research perspective, but not necessarily meant for diagnosis. And then the last interesting point is that the highest uh, points that you got on the scale that they created was five points for a temporary biopsy or a halo sign on temporal artery ultrasound. Now, a lot of U.S. centers are not doing temporal artery ultrasounds regularly. Um, it takes a lot of operator expertise, but I've introduced them in my practice and I find them very helpful. So my challenge to you is to try to find a way to introduce temporal artery ultrasound in your practice by attending some of the training sessions that are offered around the country and uh, at a very minimum opening perhaps just a fast track giant cell arteritis clinic, which I think a lot of us have found very helpful for helping reduce vision loss and some of the scarier complications of giant cell arteritis. So that's it for me from Room Now. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Be sure to follow along for more great content. So welcome, my name's Professor Peter Nash from the School of Medicine at Griffith University, beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia. And we're reporting for Room Now at ACR Convergence in Philadelphia 2022. Today I want to tackle a very topical area and that's the effect of gender on AXPAR. They uh, are a conglomerate of 24 countries led by Spain, Netherlands, Argentina have looked at 4,200 patients with AXPAR. They split them into two and a half thousand who had axial disease, a thousand with psoriatic arthritis, about 430 with AXPAR but peripheral arthritis. And they looked at the outcome measures to test whether females in particular had the changes that we're now seeing in psoriatic arthritis where they have higher baseline disease activity and a lesser response to therapy. So they looked at all the usual measures. They looked at BASDI, they looked at BASFI, they looked at ASAS Health Index, they looked at ASDAS, and they showed quite nicely across these different groups that females in general had worse function, worse disease activity, higher BASDIs, higher ASDASs than males in the same cohort and that they asked the question, what measures are not affected by gender and can be used to, as an outcome measure in these particular situations? CRP is not affected by gender, and ASDAS is not affected by gender, and they're the two, and that's the take-home bottom line, use CRP and ASDAS to assess these patients and understand that the other measures, like BASDI, BASFI, and ASAS Health Index, will be higher in females than in males. So the take home message, use your CRP, use your ASDAS to look at disease activity in AXPAR patients and you'll be fine. Peter Nash signing off from Philadelphia. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming from Philadelphia at ACR 2022 and I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing my new friend, Dr. Sinead McGuire. Um, Sinead, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, this thank you for inviting me. No, oh my gosh, I've been so excited to interview you since 2020 when we first met you oh, with Dr. Thanks. Conway. <laughs> so my question to you is you have this amazing abstract. 406. Thank Can you. you tell us a little bit about it and what inspired you? Sure, of course. So I've been really interested in patient outcomes in women specifically with axial spondyloarthritis. Um, so we know that the kind of epidemiology of ankylosing spondylitis and AXPA has changed as we've learned more about it over the past um, couple of decades. And so I've been trying to focus more on women with the disease to understand how they differ from men. And so what we did with this study is we used data from the Ankylosing Spondylitis Registry of Ireland, or the ASRI, um, and we did a correlation analysis um, essentially between BASDI, which is one of our really commonly used disease activity indices, and also the ASQOL, so looking at quality of life outcomes. And essentially we found that women, the correlation between these two indices is weaker in women than in men. So this is telling us that maybe the BASDI isn't reflecting the true impacts of quality of life in women with ASPA, and kind of raises the question, you know, maybe are there some like more minute changes within the BASDI that are having a greater impact on women in terms of their quality of life outcomes. Um, and, you know, it opens the door to a lot of interesting studies down the line, like do we need to change the cutoff indices for what disease activity is in BASDI yes. for women with AXPA? Or, you know, maybe do we need to consider developing a new tool to try and capture the impacts of their disease a little bit better? So um, that's what we were looking at. And so I think this study is kind of like opening the door to future studies. Um, you know, it's relatively um, simple in its analysis, but um, I think it does raise some really interesting questions. Well, and you're not the only one to talk about this as a, you know, disease state measures and do they actually capture disease activity for AS, particularly in women, from pregnancy and non-pregnancy standpoints too. So you mentioned something interesting to me, which is this sets the stage for future development and for future hopefully clinical trials for us. Absolutely. I know you're not in Ireland anymore. We've gotten you over to this hemisphere. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the future. You are working with ASRI. Tell me about any registries this year. Yeah, so I have been doing a lot of work with ASRI the past few years and specifically looking at women and looking at pregnancy outcomes, which was really exciting. Um, we actually published a paper last year on pregnancy outcomes from the ASRI, but I'm planning on building on that going forward using data um, from the uh, OHIP, which is the Canadian uh, Insurance Registry in uh, Canada. And so what we're doing, what we're planning to do is a much bigger study essentially looking at pregnancy outcomes um, in women with AS. So we're hoping that that will, um, again, draw a little bit more attention to this, um, also help inform our management of these women as they go through their pregnancies. Because the problem with pregnancy information in women with rheumatic disease is that a lot of it is really on rheumatoid arthritis and it's on uh, lupus. And our poor women with SPA, they want to know what to expect or what to look out for. Um, so that's why we're doing these studies, um, you know, to try and answer those questions, draw a bit more attention, and also set the stage for future studies. I think you said that beautifully. Clearly pregnancy is an area that I am really interested in too, as are you, um, not only in our spondy patients, but across the board, right? We need more information. And interestingly, you mentioned this earlier, but um, the BASDI was originally developed in the early 90s and it doesn't capture potentially all of our patients. So this is a real area of unmet need. I'm so happy you could join us today. I'm so excited for your future. I can't wait to share it with you. Thank Do you so much. Of course. Um, and we look forward to having you back again with us. But 
for any other um, comments or discussions, check us out on roomnow.com. And of course, as always, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate and follow Dr. McGuire at... Uh, at SineadM15. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Aurélie Nage from Glasgow, reporting live from Philly for RunNow. I have seen quite a few exciting um, studies today and there's one that I really wanted to share with you. So it's basically um, num abstract number 402 by Ogdi et al. Um, and they basically looked into opioids prescription in patients with ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis um, and how this, how this was impacting the medical costs and the need for uh, medical care in general. So um, first finding that I thought was quite interesting, so they looked at to 800 plus patients in the forward um, database um, for rheumatic disease, which is in, um, uh, in the US. And um, the first thing that kind of shocked me was that one patient out of five was consuming opioids on a regular basis. Um, I think first of all it's quite interesting because I think the way it relates to other countries um, it can be a bit different um, but obviously patients that were on um, opioid drugs were more likely to have you know more comorbidities they were smoking more they had higher disease activity but also and it, it makes sense they had higher health care consumption else uh, medical costs were higher more uh, visits as well and if you look specifically into the PSA um, a portion of the patients 33% of uh, visits were occurring more often annually in the context of um, you know patient and also obviously the costs were higher for both PSA and ankylosing spondylitis patients so this whole makes sense but for me the question really is does that relate to a population of patients that have more severe disease? Because you know, more comorbidities, higher disease activity, and then obviously more pain, and because of that, more opioids. Or are these patients basically prescribed opioid and therefore have more comorbidities and therefore more complications? So I think I would be quite interested to see these numbers in different countries. Um, and I think this is um, obviously something that warrants further research. Um, this was Aurélie Najm for Rum Now. Uh, tune in on Rum Now for more content and um, see you soon. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm at Room Now, a reporter, and I'm coming to you live from Philadelphia ACR 2022. I wanted to talk about non-adherence and lupus. Why is it important, but just as important for us as clinicians, what do we do about it? So I'm going to talk about three abstracts. So the first is from the SLIC, or the SLE, Inception Cohort Cooperating Clinics. And they looked at 660 patients with SLE. And they looked at hydroxychloroquine levels. And they said if you were below a certain level when you were on 400 milligrams or a half that level on 200 milligrams a day, you were considered non-adherent. This is abstract number 0343. Would they find in a nutshell? If in the first year you have low hydroxychloroquine levels, there's three important things. Number one, increased flares in the next year. Number two, more accrual of damage over the next five years. And five-year mortality was increased. So very solemn. What are we going to do about it? 
So there's two abstracts that I want to talk about. One was to have looking at non-adherence in minorities such as lupus patients of color. This was abstract number 0115. What did they do and what did they find? They interviewed uh, clinic nurses, rheumatologists that treated lupus patients and lupus patients themselves who were minorities, patients of color. And they found basically three things. They found that an optimal intervention to improve adherence will need capability, opportunity, and motivation. Well, what's that mean? Capability, you gotta have access to your meds. Opportunity, uh, reminders, social media, other ways to help you to take your meds, and motivation through empowerment, and really, again, ways for patients to understand and education to take their meds. The final one I wanna talk about is that if you're gonna look at adherence, in four minutes, actually 3.9 minutes, you can discuss adherence. So doctors in a lupus clinic were trained that if a patient was filling their prescriptions for their lupus meds less than 80% of the time over the last three months to have an intervention. So of 24 encounters like this, 21 had positive reinforcement um, and the patient said it was validated in 17 of those 21 and 11 had open-ended questions. This is abstract number 0063. Bottom line is non-adherence and lupus can kill our patients. There's ways of improving it by um, looking in qualitative studies and then enacting it. And this is a way in four minutes you can discuss adherence with your patients. What we need to know next is if I discuss non-adherence and help the patient become more adherent, will change outcomes? I hope so. Coming to you now at Room Now. Thank you. Hello everyone, this is Aurélie Nage from Glasgow reporting from Rem, for RemNow in live from Philadelphia. I'm super excited to be here. It's the first time I've been to ACR in a couple of years, I've, as basically all of us, um, obviously. So I'm really glad to be here and I have some really, really cool content to share with you today. So um, the first abstract I wanted to talk to you about is um, number 533 from Wilson and colleagues, um, and it's about um, at-risk individuals for RA. So we know for a fact that um, individuals at risk um, are very likely to develop clinical rheumatoid. However, this can take three to five years for them. Um, and some are at imminent risk, and we don't really know how to differentiate um, these patients. So um, what um, the team has done in that work is basically quite interesting. So they've selected patients that were at risk for RA and, and that, that had serum um, anti-CCP antibodies. And they looked at um, hypertonic saline-induced sputum and they looked at um, anti-CCP antibodies in their sputum. So basically what was really, really um, interesting was that they separated IgA anti-CCP, IgG anti-CCP, and rheumatoid factor IgM. And they looked into how the presence of these antibodies in these patients' sputum was associated to imminent risk of developing RA. And they looked at patients that were going to develop it within 12 months. So um, 60, 66 patients were included in that study, and they were able to show that um, the sensitivity of the presence of these antibodies in the sputum uh, was 67% versus only 30% for those who had only serum antibodies. 
So um, I think this is something that it doesn't seem really hard to implement in clinical practice because we already know how to look into these antibodies. The kits are available, they're not really expensive. So I'm quite, I'm quite excited about the idea that, you know, this could be something that could be implemented, um, of course, after validation of these findings in another prospective cohort. Um, so that was Aurélie Nage reporting for, for Rum Now. Tune in um, on rumnow.com for more content and I'll see you around. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. I'm here at ACR 2022 Philadelphia. We're on the uh, exhibit floor in the Room Now booth and I ran into Dr. Andrea Fava. I'm a big fan of his. Andrea's from uh, uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, I met him two years ago when he had this plenary session talk on the value of CD16 as a biomarker in lupus, far surpassing all the things that we usually look at, like complements and proteinuria and whatnot. And he's been working in this area for quite some time. He's got a number of presentations here. Andrea, tell us about what you're presenting that you're excited about. Yeah, uh, this, we are showing that the newest advancement on the urinary biomarkers, as well we also other work from the Accelerating Medicines Partnership, uh, so various things. So urinary biomarkers in relation to how can we use these non-invasive biomarkers of kidney inflammation uh, to predict who's going to respond to treatment in lupus nephritis. And, and that's a, kind of a revolution because lupus nephritis is an inflammatory condition. We treat with anti-inflammatory, which is immunosuppression. But then we look at response based on proteinuria, which is not a marker of inflammation. And so we're now using these biomarkers to say, oh, is the inflammation going down when we use these drugs? And then when it does, these are the patients that ultimately, after one or two years, are those who responded. And so this is a new way of looking at it. And then we also have other stuff from the AMP. Right, so the one, proteinuria is really a marker of damage, right, mostly. And then uh, the urinary biomarkers you're talking about, which one specifically? Yeah, so proteinuria is, is, is right, is the damage of the filter. It means the podocytes are damaged, and then whether there's infl inflammation or not, doesn't matter, you can have proteinuria. Now, the biomarkers, we confirm the interleukin-16 mm -hmm. uh, as the biomarkers of nephritis activity, and we have found markers of macrophage activation, such as CD163 and CD206, and these are markers of the pro-resolving macrophages in the kidney. They are trying to heal and maybe causing fibrosis, but they are high at the, the time of active kidney uh, lupus, and they, they go down after two or three months in patients who are effectively responding to immunosuppression. Yeah, so I, and I, I've seen your papers on this. It's really exciting. How practical do you think this is going to be? Obviously, you're just looking at urine, so that's going to be easily accessible, but what about getting, um, you know, IL-16, um, and uh, CD-163, about getting those done, you think those will be commercially available? I think they will. I think that CD163 is the one that has the highest chance of becoming available because it has been proven, proven as a biomarker in the blood and the urine in many other diseases. Wherever there is uh, macrophage activation, I think macrophage activation syndrome is a good biomarker. Uh, other like ANC-associated vasculitis, IgA, nephropathy, they can have urinary CD163 as a biomarker, so that will come. And, uh, and I think that these biomarkers are so become helpful, not only to have a non-invasive diagnostic tool, but because you can measure them longitudinally, and that can be important. So uh, in academic centering research, we are great at making these discoveries. Uh, and so now we are working to partner 
with industry and other partners who have the know-how to take this to the next level. So I'm hopeful that in the next few years, uh, once we pass the surpass the uh, regulatory hurdles and in the U.S. the you know payer and insurance hurdles will get them available because they can truly change things. And if I can say one more thing, this is a great opportunity to change clinical trial endpoints. Oh yeah. And it can make uh, the chance of success of a clinical trial much higher because you, we, the clinical trials are mostly with immunosuppressants, and but they are measuring proteinuria as an outcome, and that can be messy. And the moment that we can validate these biomarkers as a better biomarker of long-term outcomes, and so if you if you stop me again next year, I'll show you that data. Yeah, and what, what we didn't have time for here, but you have a body of literature on, is that these biomarkers you're in, re in your research correlates with lupus activity. Yes. Correlates with histology on renal biopsy. You know, all the things that we're really worried about. So that's why this is not something that's just a passing fancy. This is the future of lupus management. I, I, I certainly hope so. And, and it can, can be so helpful for our patients, for clinicians, and for clinical trial development. Yeah. Follow Dr. Fava at ACR and in the journals. Hi, this is Dr. Katherine Dow. I'm reporting on the American College of Rheumatology 2022 conference for Room Now. And here with me is my guest, Jarena Lim. She's actually a medical student, third year here at UT Southwestern. And she's going to be talking to us about her abstract. Welcome, Jarena. Thank you, Dr. Dow. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So your abstract number is 0220 and it's about social media use in academic rheumatology. Tell me about it. That's correct. Um, so as a third year medical student, uh, I was working with Dr. Dow um, on this study of social media in academic rheumatology. Um, Dr. Dow has um, done a lot of um, research on um, social media and its role in medicine. And our study specifically was evaluating the use of social media um, among rheumatology professionals at UT Southwestern. What did you find? Um, great question. So we um, sent out an online survey to healthcare professionals, researchers, and trainees um, within the rheumatic diseases division at UT Southwestern, and we were trying to identify um, current trends, beliefs, and practices regarding um, social media. And so um, from this um, survey, we found um, several different things. Um, we found that um, the majority um, of the um, people using the social media um, um, were between 40 to 50 years old, and, and Facebook was the most popular platform among them. Um, we also asked them about their top reasons um, for using social media, and this included entertainment um, for friendships and also to learn about current trends. Um, other things we found were that 84% of respondents believe that social media has a role in medical education, um, which is an overwhelming majority. However, only 33% um, of these people have actually used social media to enhance medical education. Now, this disparity, we wanted to know um, what what um, what was the reason behind um, why not many people not many people uh, might be um, hesitant to be using um, social media for medical education. And so, um, other questions we asked about was how um, respondents felt about their proficiency um, with social media. 
And this is interesting. Um, only 5% of people rated their proficiency as excellent. 59% um, rated it their, profici their proficiency as good. And 33% rated their proficiency as fair. Um, in addition to that, we also um, were able to learn about people's reasons for not using social media. Um, and this included privacy concerns, um, viewing social media as a waste of time, um, as well as um, the validity of information that is out there on social media. Right. So do you use social media to enhance your medical education? I do. And I think before this um, project of working on this abstract, I don't think I realized um, how much I was actually um, using social media to enhance my education as a medical student. Um, I follow a lot of different doctors um, on different social media platforms, and they um, use their platforms to educate um, not only medical students, but just the general public about different um, trends in medicine, new um, topics and um, exciting um, things going on in research, as well as just um, different topics that are very um, high yield to know for medical students as well. And I think um, they're really great because they condense the, the topics down into very short um, messages that help you capture the highlights of what you need to know. And I really feel like that I learn a lot from them. And I don't think I was realizing how much they were benefiting me until I started to think about it. What kind of tips would you recommend to your fellow med students and people who want to incorporate social media into learning about medicine? Great question. Um, I think there's a lot of possibilities for anyone who is interested um, in starting to incorporate social media um, into their practice, um, whether or not they're a medical student or a resident or attending. Um, I think just getting started um, on whatever platform you choose is um, and starting to connect with people that you are interested in, um, following them and seeing how people use their platform um, is one way to start learning. Um, I think it's a great idea to start educating yourself on um, how to use social media. I know there's a lot of hesitancy out there. Um, so just learning from others and how they've been able to navigate um, this sort of new um, area that is going to become more and more um, prominent, I think, in medicine. Um, just one way to get started. And as medical students right now, I think for medical students specifically, um, just starting to maybe practice for the future and where you want to educate people in um, when like we become um, uh, physicians, I think um, we'll, we can start practicing just sharing what we know and maybe allowing other people um, to look into a glimpse of our lives and how we are navigating medical school right now. I think you're right. And that's very important. I mean, employers and, you know, your residency directors, your program directors for fellowship, they look at your social media profile. Uh, my tips to medical students is, you know, number one, keep it clean. Number two, make it accurate. And number three, to, to disseminate good information, not bad, because you really could use this to educate the public, to really enhance your voice. Um, and it's amazing because, you know, I learned so much from 
Twitter. I learned so much from, you know, different platforms, like you say. Um, right now, the American College of Rheumatology, the tweet storms are crazy. I mean, it's everywhere. I've been tweeting like nuts. And so um, it's one of those things that, you know, unless you try it, you don't know how exciting it is. So, you know, I have a Twitter account. Mine is at KDAO2011. And then do you, what's your Twitter account, Jarena? Mine is at Jarena Lim 925. So I want everybody to follow us. And I also have a TikTok account, believe it or not, over 10,700 followers. And I educate the general public about rheumatology. So thank you so much for your time, Jarena. And this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for RoomNow. Thank you so much, Dr. Dow. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm reporting on the American College of Rheumatology 2022 conference for Room Now. And here with me is my guest, Jarena Lim. She's actually a medical student, third year here at UT Southwestern. And she's going to be talking to us about her abstract. Welcome, Jarena. Thank you, Dr. Dow. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So your abstract number is 0220. And it's about social media use in academic rheumatology. Tell me about it. That's correct. Um, so as a third year medical student, uh, I was working with Dr. Dow um, on this study of social media in academic rheumatology. Um, Dr. Dow has um, done a lot of um, research on um, social media and its role in medicine. And our study specifically was evaluating the use of social media um, among rheumatology professionals at UT Southwestern. What did you find? Um, great question. So we um, sent out an online survey to healthcare professionals, researchers, and trainees um, within the rheumatic diseases division at UT Southwestern, and we were trying to identify um, current trends, beliefs, and practices regarding um, social media. And so um, from this um, survey, we found um, several different things. Um, we found that um, the majority um, of the um, people using the social media um, um, were between 40 to 50 years old, and, and Facebook was the most popular platform among them. Um, we also asked them about their top reasons um, for using social media, and this included entertainment um, for friendships and also to learn about current trends. Um, other things we found were that 84% of respondents believe that social media has a role in medical education, um, which is an overwhelming majority. However, only 33% um, of these people have actually used social media to enhance medical education. Now, this disparity, we wanted to know um, what what um, what was the reason behind um, why not many people not many people uh, might be um, hesitant to be using um, social media for medical education. And so, um, other questions we asked about was how um, respondents felt about their proficiency um, with social media. And this was interesting. Um, only 5% of people rated their proficiency as excellent. 59% um, rated it their, profici their proficiency as good. And 33% rated their proficiency as fair. Um, in addition to that, we also um, were able to learn about people's reasons for not using social media. Um, and this included privacy concerns, um, 
viewing social media as a waste of time, um, as well as um, the validity of information that is out there on social media. Right. So do you use social media to enhance your medical education? I do. And I think before this um, project of working on this abstract, I don't think I realized um, how much I was actually um, using social media to enhance my education as a medical student. Um, I follow a lot of different doctors um, on different social media platforms, and they um, use their platforms to educate um, not only medical students, but just the general public about different um, trends in medicine, new um, topics and um, exciting um, things going on in research, as well as just um, different topics that are very um, high yield to know for medical students as well. And I think um, they're really great because they condense the, the topics down into very short um, messages that help you capture the highlights of what you need to know. And I really feel like that I learn a lot from them. And I don't think I was realizing how much they were benefiting me until I started to think about it. What kind of tips would you recommend to your fellow med students and people who want to incorporate social media into learning about medicine? Great question. Um, I think there's a lot of possibilities for anyone who is interested um, in starting to incorporate social media um, into their practice, um, whether or not they're a medical student or a resident or attending. Um, I think just getting started um, on whatever platform you choose is um, and starting to connect with people that you are interested in, um, following them and seeing how people use their platform um, is one way to start learning. Um, I think it's a great idea to start educating yourself on um, how to use social media. I know there's a lot of hesitancy out there. Um, so just learning from others and how they've been able to navigate um, this sort of new um, area that is going to become more and more um, prominent, I think, in medicine. Um, just one way to get started. And as medical students right now, I think for medical students specifically, um, just starting to maybe practice for the future and where you want to educate people in um, when like we become um, uh, physicians, I think um, we'll, we can start practicing just sharing what we know and maybe allowing other people um, to look into a glimpse of our lives and how we are navigating medical school right now. I think you're right. And that's very important. I mean, employers and, you know, your residency directors, your program directors for fellowship, they look at your social media profile. Uh, my tips to medical students is, you know, number one, keep it clean. Number two, make it accurate. And number three, to to disseminate good information, not bad, because you really could use this to educate the public, to really enhance your voice. Um, and it's amazing because, you know, I learned so much from Twitter. I learned so much from, you know, different platforms, like you say. Um, right now, the American College of Rheumatology, the tweet storms are crazy. I mean, it's everywhere. I've been tweeting like nuts. And so um, it's one of those things that, you know, unless you try it, you don't know how exciting it is. So, you know, I have a Twitter account. Mine is at KDAO2011. And then do you, what's your Twitter account, Jarena? Mine is at JarenaLim925. 
So I want everybody to follow us. And I also have a TikTok account, believe it or not, over 10,700 followers, and I educate the general public about rheumatology. So thank you so much for your time, Jarena. And this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Thank you so much, Dr. Dow. Hi, I'm Dr. Julian Sagan from Melbourne, Australia. I'm reporting to you from Room Now. Uh, we're at the ACR Convergence in 2022 in sunny Philadelphia. So I'm here with Dr. Brian England. Uh, I wanted to interview uh, Brian about uh, his abstract 0245, the influence of forced vital capacity impairment on treatment selection and outcomes in rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease in patients initiating a biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD. Thank you for coming on, uh, Dr. England. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here, back in person. Very exciting, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, so could you tell us a bit about the, uh, the main findings of the abstract? Yeah, so, you know, the abstract really gets us this idea of how should we manage patients with rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease. It's a very challenging population, as you're well aware of, to take care of. We don't have a lot of data to guide us. And so really the premise behind the abstract is, is, is one of the reasons that we don't have a lot of data because we don't know which therapies to choose, you know, which of our immunomodulatory therapies might be best for these patients. And we really wanted to try and get at the question of, well, what's driving both the choice of which therapy we should give these patients, as well as what's driving the outcomes after these patients receive advanced immunomodulatory therapies. So utilizing uh, national VA data over a large period of time, we looked at what the predictors were of either receiving a non-TNF or JAK inhibitor versus a TNF inhibitor in people who have RAILD. Then we looked at what the outcomes were afterwards, what things predicted whether they were in the hospital, what things predicted whether they ended up dying over those few years after initiating that therapy. And the key thing that we really wanted to look at that studies haven't looked at such so far is the severity of their ILD. And we know a great surrogate marker of their ILD severity is their forced vital capacity. And so we extracted forced vital capacity measurements out of the electronic health record. Uh, some of it was available, some of it we had to use natural language processing to extract out. And what we found was that the forced vital capacity, as we might expect, is highly predictive of their outcomes. It predicted people going to the hospital for a respiratory complaint. It predicted people dying after they'd initiated an advanced therapy. But what was a little bit surprising was the forced vital capacity severity was not a strong predictor of which therapy people were getting. And I think that's a little bit eye-opening to this idea that what we clearly know that how severe your ILD is is going to impact whether or not you live or die. But we still don't know whether or not that means we should treat you differently. So there's clearly a lot of work to be done to figure out how to best treat these patients. So why do you think that severity of the ILD didn't predict uh, the treatment choices? Is it the fact that we don't know how to treat this disease? Is it, is it, are there other factors like uh, availability of certain medications with insurance coverage? Yeah, I think it's both. I think absolutely it's both. You know, we don't have any clinical trial data of our immunomodulatory therapies and RAILD. And so that's a, that's a huge gap that we need to solve going forward. But the other piece is exactly that. You know, so when we don't have that data, what drives our treatment decisions, the things we have. So when we looked at our data, it was, yeah, more current time periods where we had more options, we were more likely to go to a non-TNF or a JAK. You know, if people had had, you know, numerous prior biologic therapies, they were more likely to end up on a non-TNF. Kind of, you know, the severity of their RA, their articular disease, pushed people that way. So um, I guess 
one of the questions I had based on the mortality and the outcome data was, uh, do you think that the treatment actually influenced some of the respiratory-related hospitalizations and some of the mortality, or do you think that that was, uh, that was independent or even perhaps protective like some of the methotrexate data? Yes. I think all of those above. That's a great question, right? Yeah. You know, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, we know there are some complications that can happen. You know, every therapy has been implicated for drug-induced pneumonitis. We know these are immunomodulatory therapies. And what's the big infection we worry about in people with RAILD? Well, it's pneumonia, right? Someone gets a pneumonia who's already got severe parenchymal damage in their lungs. It can be devastating. So I think there's definitely the potential for badness with these therapies. Now, whether or not there's benefit from them, that remains to be determined. As we both have talked before, you know, there's a lot of uncontrolled studies that suggest you know, the vast majority of people with RALD who initiate these advanced therapies are either stable or maybe even have a little bit of improvement. But what's lacking is that comparative data. You know, what's lacking is accounting for how severe their articular disease is, how severe their interstitial lung disease is. If we compare these therapies, which therapies are patients going to do better with? You know, and we don't have that clinical trial data. We don't even have that comparative observational data for the most part. Yeah, so that leads me on to really the elephant in the room. How do we get that data? We, I think it's probably unlikely that we're going to have big phase three trials. So how do we get the data to actually answer those questions? Well, I think that's where we have to look at the real world, right? What's happening in the real world? Have we treated enough people with these therapies in the real world that we can now look back and you know, use pharmacoepidemiologic principles and study designs to try and tease that apart. And this study is really a first step towards doing that. First step is understanding what's driving treatment selection, what's driving treatment outcomes, and now that we know that information, you know, let's simulate a randomized controlled trial with real world data. Yeah, and a final question, my colleagues at home would probably kill me if I didn't ask one of the experts. What are your go-to drugs based on your clinical experience or even some of the, the, um, the low levels of data? What are your go-to therapies for RAILD? Well, it depends. You know, I would say that, you know, there's not one that is so good that blanket for all RAILD patients I'd head this way. The first step is really taking a detailed assessment of what is this person's RAILD, right? It's not just their lungs. These people have articular disease. And so it's, it's doing a full assessment of what is the systemic nature of their disease, what organs are being involved, uh, how is it impacting their quality of life and what they want to function, and from that kind of tailoring, you know, the medication selection. Um, you know, oftentimes for people who are on conventional therapies, you know, azathioprine is a reasonable option to consider. Uh, for people who are, you know, requiring biologic therapies, uh, you know, certainly we use plenty of uh, rituximab, rabitacept, um, but it really just, it's patient by patient at this point, and there's no data to drive it. It's all experience. So to all the people at home, I'm sorry that we don't have a better answer, but hopefully Dr. England will come up with a, with a better answer with more time and more data. So I just want to thank Dr. England again for his time and expertise. Uh, really interesting uh, and, uh, topic and uh, very amazing abstract. Uh, so thank you for your time. Well, thanks so much for having me. So I'm Julian Segan for, for Room Now, and uh, join us uh, for more coverage of the ACR 2022 in Philadelphia. Hi Philadelphia, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I have an honor today of introducing you, if you don't already know her, to my friend Dr. Alexis Ogdi. Alexis, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. You are prolific with everything that you do, but one of the abstracts that really spoke to me this year is Abstract 1600. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So this is a study from the Coravitas Registry among patients with psoriatic arthritis who were 
I had, fin I had failed their first TNF inhibitor and then were switching to a new TNF or switching to a new mechanism of action. So we examined the outcomes over the next six months and then the next two years, and we found that patients who switched to an alternative medic um, MOA actually did it slightly better. It wasn't a lot different, but it was a little bit different than someone who switched to another TNF inhibitor. So I think this is really interesting because we talk about this all the time, right? And unfortunately, a lot of our decisions tend to be made based on what we can get access to for our yeah. patients. But when it comes down to it, how are you treating patients in clinic in an ideal world? Yeah, so in an ideal world, I usually will, if they did really well in that first TNF inhibitor and they were on it for a long period of time, then I'm going to go to second TNF inhibitor usually. But if they didn't do so well or they kind of had a stuttering course, then I might switch to a different mechanism of action. So there's some new ones, you know, so you can't put into a study like a registry study. Well, absolutely. I mean, and I think there's a big difference between loss of efficacy and lack of efficacy, yeah. which is really kind of what you're highlighting. Exactly. So when it comes down to it, do you, how long do you tend to wait for these patients to have a response? Again, nuanced, I know. Right. In general, I tell patients I'd like them to try it for six months because if we're switching before six months, there are some people who will continue to respond out to that time. So, so I really appreciate the way that you treat patients because I think it's very common in what we do in general for patient treatment. But one other thing that you mentioned today is that there's another abstract, which is also quite interesting. It's abstract 402 regarding opiate use. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, one of the things we're also interested in is how do we get patients feeling better overall? And we know that a lot of patients are feeling well, and there's actually still a lot of patients utilizing opiates, which we know to be bad for many reasons. Um, so in the forward registry, which is a national database for rheumatic diseases, we examined patients with psoriatic arthritis and ACSPA, and we looked at the prevalence of opiate use and then how those patients were different and were they being treated differently. And so you might think maybe they're not getting enough of the DMARDs or, C or biologics, for example, but actually they were getting more. And so they tended to be people who were just not doing as well they had higher healthcare utilization, higher patient-reported disease activity. So these patients, you can tell, are just not doing well. So we need an alternative approaches to getting patients to that lower level of disease activity, or the perceived disease activity and better quality of life. So I think perception's a really big deal for our patients. I mean, if they respond and if they feel they're responding, ultimately their own pros, right, patient-reported outcomes tend to be a little bit higher. That's data we're all familiar with, but are we actually capturing it? And I think that's a really clinically useful discussion, and it changes. It's nuanced, as you said. I mean... Exactly. So, so is psoriatic arthritis and right. psoriatic yeah. disease. So. Yeah, and it, it is tricky, and I think sometimes people are maybe quick to reach for the opiates because it's easy. And I think this is the point where we need to slow down and say, all right, what, what else do we have in our toolbox? Because there's many other things that we're not maybe utilizing as much as we could. That that was beautifully stated. I, there's no other way to really have, have it that discussion without having that discussion. And um, I really... You are my dear friend, and you know, I, I think you have such an amazing plethora, the way that your mind thinks epidemiologically, et cetera, you've gifted that to the ACR, amongst other, other <laughs> publications. But what I really think is interesting is the way that you have utilized your background to create this amazing career for yourself. And you have also been involved with FIT, right, the fellows. And so if you had one piece of advice for our fellows in training, what do you think that would be? Persistence. So stick with it. Find something you're passionate about and then don't get off that track. Just stay on the track. 
You, my dear, are one of the most passionate people I've ever <laughs> met. <laughs> So much. thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you for giving of your time, your energy, your effort. And as always, follow us on uh, roomnow.com, but also follow me on Twitter at UpToTate and Dr. Ogdi at... Alexis Ogdi. I can never remember my Twitter handle. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn Alexis for sure. O. And maybe it's Alexis O. Thank you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, don't worry. Find us on Twitter. We're here for you. And thank you again. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Dr. Katherine Sims covering the ACR 22 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for Room Now. And today we're going to talk about the impact of upacitinib versus adalidumab and psoriatic arthritis using the RAPID-3. This is abstract 0192 from Dr. Laura Coates at the University of Oxford. And this study is a post hoc analysis from the double blind select psoriatic arthritis one trial. And what they did is included patients who had been intolerant or uh, had an inadequate response to more than one biologic or sorry, non-biologic DMARD. They received upacitinib 15 or 30 milligrams per day or adalidumab 40 milligrams every two weeks or they were placed in a placebo group. The placebo group was then switched to upacitinib 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams at week 24. The RAPID-3 is calculated using pain scores, patients' global assessment of disease activity, and HACDI scores. And these were assessed through week 56. 1,200 patients were included in this study, and patients on upacitinib actually showed greater improvement from their baseline RAPID-3 versus adalidumab at all visits from weeks 15 to 56. By week 56, half of patients on either therapy were either in remission or low activity based off their RAPID-3, which is a wonderful response, but RAPID-3 scores were significantly better in patients on upacitinib 15 milligrams per day. So the takeaway point from this study is that upacitinib 15 milligrams per day led to greater improvements in the RAPID-3 over placebo over a 56-week period. And there were greater improvements over uh, adalidumab from week 16 to 56. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. I'm here at ACR 2022 Philadelphia. We're on the uh, exhibit floor in the Room Now booth, and I ran into Dr. Andrea Fava. I'm a big fan of his. Andrea's from uh, uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, I met him two years ago when he had this plenary session talk on the value of CD16 as a biomarker in lupus, far surpassing all the things that we usually look at, like complements and proteinuria and whatnot. And he's been working in this area for quite some time. He's got a number of presentations here. Andrea, tell us about what you're presenting that you're excited about. Yeah, uh, this, we are showing that the newest advancement on the urinary biomarkers. As well, we also other work from the Accelerating Medicines Partnership. Uh, so various things. So urinary biomarkers in relation to how can we use these non-invasive biomarkers of kidney inflammation uh, to predict who's going to respond to treatment in lupus nephritis. And, and that's a kind of a revolution because lupus nephritis is an inflammatory condition. We treat with anti-inflammatory, which is immunosuppression. But then we look at response based on proteinuria which is not a marker of inflammation. And so we're now using these biomarkers to say, oh, is the inflammation going down when we use these drugs? And then when it does, these are the patients that ultimately, after one or two years, are those who responded. And so this is a new way of looking at it. And then we also have other stuff from the AMP. Right, so the one, proteinuria is really a marker of damage, right, mostly? And then uh, the urinary biomarkers you're talking about, which one specifically? Yeah, so proteinuria is, is, you're right, is the damage of the filter. It means the podocytes are damaged, and then whether there's infl inflammation or not, doesn't matter. You can have proteinuria. 
Now, the biomarkers, we confirmed the interleukin-16 mm -hmm. uh, as a biomarkers of nephritis activity, and we have found markers of macrophage activation, such as CD163 and CD206, and these are markers of the pro-resolving macrophages in the kidney. They are trying to heal and maybe causing fibrosis, but they are high at the time of active kidney uh, lupus, and they, they go down after two or three months in patients who are effectively responding to immunosuppression. Yeah, so I, and I, I've seen your papers on this. It's really exciting. How practical do you think this is going to be? Obviously, you're just looking at urine, so that's going to be easily accessible, but what about getting, um, you know, IL-16, um, and uh, CD-163, about getting those done. Uh, you think those will be commercially available? I think they will. I think that CD163 is the one that has the highest chance of becoming available because it has been a proven, proven as a biomarker in the blood and the urine in many other diseases. Wherever there is uh, macrophage activation, I think macrophage activation syndrome is a good biomarker. Uh, other like ANC-associated vasculitis, IgA, nephropathy, they can have urinary CD163 as a biomarker, so that will come. And, uh, and I think that these biomarkers are so become helpful not only to have a non-invasive diagnostic tool, but because you can measure them longitudinally, and that can be important. So uh, in academic centering research, we are great at making these discoveries. Uh, and so now we are working to partner with industry and other partners who have the know-how to take this to the next level. So I'm hopeful that in the next few years, uh, once we pass the surpass the uh, regulatory hurdles and in the US the you know payer and insurance hurdles will get them available because they can truly change things and if I can say one more thing this is a great opportunity to change clinical trial endpoints oh, yeah. and it can make uh, the chance of success of a clinical trial much higher because you we, the clinical trials are mostly with immunosuppressants and but they are measuring proteinuria as an outcome and that can be messy and the moment that we can validate these biomarkers as a better biomarker of long-term outcomes, and so if you if you stop me again next year, I'll show you that data. Yeah, and what, what we didn't have time for here, but you have a body of literature on, is that these biomarkers your and your research correlates with lupus activity. Yes. Correlates with histology on renal biopsy. You know, all the things that we're really worried about. So that's why this is not something that's just a passing fancy. This is the future of lupus management. I, I, I certainly hope so. And, and it can, can be so helpful for our patients, for clinicians, and for clinical trial development. Yeah. Follow Dr. Fava at ACR and in the journals. Hi everyone, back at the ACR 2022 Convergence here in the historical city of Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Janet Pope, or at Janet Burdope, here reporting as a room reporter at Room Now. I'd like to talk about switching from a JAK inhibitor to something else when a patient has rheumatoid arthritis. So these are data from the OPAL database. So this is abstract number 0274. The cool thing about the OPAL database is it's data extracted from the electronic medical records of the rheumatologist in Australia. Most are participating and the patient either says no, I don't consent or the data can go. So it's a better way of obtaining consent because it's a dissent or you get the data. So they have a large database and what they have looked at is 5,900 patients with rheumatoid arthritis who have been treated with a JAK inhibitor. So what they find, all the jacks so far released in Australia have about the same retention. The medium retention is about three years. 
Um, they also found that 30% uh, or one in three patients go from a jack in RA to another jack. What they find when they switch, they found like all the other drugs when we switch within class that they can be helpful, but a little bit less retention and a little bit less of a high DAS uh, response. So you can go jack to jack, you can get a good retention, you can get a good response, but your first is uh, the best. And that's true with the other uh, um, TNFs and everything as well. What is my take home though? My take home message is I think we need randomized controlled trials that say, if you're using first line jack as an advanced therapy, should we randomize patients to jack to jack or jack to other MOA? And then we'd really get the answer on the best durability and the best deep response uh, is within class or outside of class or any of the above. So I hope you look forward to other reports from me and have a great day. Thank you. Hello everyone. My name is Yus Yusuf. I'm from uh, Leeds, United Kingdom. I'm reporting for Room Now uh, for uh, ACR Conference 2022 at Philadelphia. Unfortunately, I won't be able uh, to attend the meeting uh, personally. Hence, uh, I'm uh, joining and reporting for Room Now uh, through a virtual um, uh, attendee. Um, so today uh, is the official first day of uh, ACR conference. Uh, there have been uh, plenty of uh, uh, data presented. Uh, the one that um, caught my eye uh, in terms of uh, lupus topic uh, is uh, an abstract uh, title, uh, abstract number 0355. Uh, this uh, is um, a post hoc uh, analysis. Uh, of a three-year study of uh, chlorosporin uh, in class five lupus nephritis uh, uh, trials. Uh, as we all know, um, out of all the uh, clusters in lupus nephritis, uh, class five, uh, which is the membranous nephropathy, is one of the hardest one to treat uh, because the patient often uh, have um, severe proteinuria. Uh, it, is, it is really important uh, to get uh, the uh, protein urea reduce or back to as normal as we can as soon as possible uh, because this can uh, affect uh, long-term outcomes. So this uh, study um, is uh, initially from the Aurora uh, 1 trial uh, for 12 months. After that, uh, those patients will then continue in a blinded fashion way for another two years. So it's three years in total. So uh, in these patients, um, uh, so there were 81 uh, patients in total that were reported uh, uh, of this. Um, 30 of them uh, had uh, class uh, five, a uh, pure, uh, pure class five nephritis, uh, whereas uh, the other um, remaining uh, have a mixed uh, class five nephritis. Uh, you know, it could be three and five or four and five uh, uh, you know, uh, cl uh, classes. So they compared um, between two arms. One is um, the Volclosporin and the standard, standard therapy uh, versus um, standard therapy uh, plus uh, placebo. Um, so uh, at uh, 36 months follow-up, uh, interestingly, uh, there's more uh, sort of, uh, the, the patient uh, who achieve um, reduction uh, of urine protein urea uh, from uh, in three gram uh, to less than uh, 0.5 milli uh, milligram uh, uh, protein urea. 
was a lot faster uh, in developer prosperin group compared to the uh, standard therapy. Uh, so the median times uh, were uh, three and a half months uh, for the prosperin group uh, and also um, eight months uh, for um, uh, the, the standard therapy. Uh, also, uh, when they look into broader picture, if they come, uh, if they analyze uh, the the mixed classes together, uh, still um, the median time is uh, three months uh, for uh, the vocosporin group, uh, whereas uh, for the standard therapy, it was quite a long, um, around sort of fifteen to sixteen months. So, uh, and uh, importantly, people were talking about so one is proteinuria, but how about the renal function? Um, so the studies also show that uh, in um, class 5 uh, lupus nephritis, uh, the EGFR was maintained throughout uh, for three years. So this is really uh, important data um, to show uh, that the vocrosporin uh, also works uh, effectively uh, in this particular type uh, of uh, lupus nephritis, which is uh, uh, you know, resistant, seem to uh, resistant to therapy. Um, how this um, will um, affect our uh, clinical implications? Um, so, so for countries uh, who can uh, get access to vocrosporin. So this is quite a good, this is really good news uh, to improve uh, outcomes of our patients. Uh, however, uh, for uh, those countries, uh, you know, for which uh, vocrosporin, uh, there is no access to it, uh, particularly in terms of, um, you know, fun uh, funding wise, because it's quite expensive. So maybe we probably uh, would think of uh, trying to substitute uh, a different calcineurin inhibitor in these patients who have really heavy proteinuria before, you know, try to get them stabilized, lower them quickly before we then uh, embark them with other uh, immunosuppressive therapy uh, that is available uh, on, on you know, in India countries. So uh, I hope um, um, you find that um, summary uh, interesting uh, and useful for clinical practice. Uh, you can uh, follow me. Uh, uh, on my Twitter handle, U6Yusuf, uh, and follow uh, Room Now for more coverage uh, through uh, YouTube's uh, uh, tweet, uh, Twitter uh, and uh, uh, LinkedIn. Bye-bye. Greetings from Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I am here representing Team PSA to give you the best of PSA from ACR 2022 for today, which is Saturday, November 12th of 2022. So I'm going to give you two abstracts today. The first is abstract number 387, entitled Sleep Quality in Patients with Psoriatic Arthritis and Its Relationship with Activity and Comorbidity. So this was by Dr. Martinez et al. It's a cross-sectional study, nearly 250 psoriatic arthritis patients. And the group looked at multiple, multiple measures. But one that they included, which is really interesting, is a PSQI questionnaire regarding sleep. So ultimately, their analysis showed that four out of six psoriatic arthritis patients self-report poor sleep quality. This was mainly found in our female patients but it was also associated with increased emphysitis, increased disease activity reporting, in addition to fatigue, anxiety, and depression. Now, I don't think that's necessarily what's so interesting about this subject. Here's what's really interesting about this actual study. 
only half of these patients, again, self-reported, poor sleep quality, were on medications in an effort to improve their sleep. They, we didn't have any discussion regarding non-pharmacological interventions for these patients, but we all know that sleep is very important. It's also quite complex. So while this study doesn't share the whole um, kind of paradigm of sleep regarding our patients, what it does, it does point out for me and for our team is that we need more data regarding sleep independent of disease, but we also need to be discussing and integrating sleep options for our patients in clinical practice and working that into our clinical repertoire, whether that be pharmacological and, um, or non-pharmacological interventions for patients. So just kind of keep that as a clinical pearl in the back of your mind. Our next abstract is number 377 entitled Differences in Early Onset Versus Late Onset Psoriatic Arthritis. Now this is data from the Respondia and the Regisponsor studies. This was by Dr. Puche La Rubia et al. And the objective of this particular study was to understand disease differences as they may be related to early age less than 40 versus late onset, age greater than 60 for our psoriatic arthritis patients. Now, as I mentioned before, this is actually an observational study looking at Respondia and the Registrar registries out of Spain. Again, nearly 250 patients. What they ultimately found was that the late onset patients, so again, those over age 60, predominantly were male, they had higher structural damage at baseline from their disease. They had elevated VASPs, and of course they had more upper extremity arthritis. That's interesting, but what they also found was that those patients were less likely to have sacroiliitis and enthesitis. So kind of showing a different spectrum of disease than we had maybe thought previously. So also interestingly, early versus late disease onset had no effect on the overall quality of a patient's life the disease activity itself, or changes with treatment options. So this is the first day of ACR 2022, and this is our day one report for Team PSA. We are absolutely looking forward to tomorrow. We're going to have more PSA-specific abstracts. And as always, for more ACR 2022 coverage, log into roomnow.com. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Yus uh, Yusuf. Uh, I'm uh, reporting uh, for Room Now. Uh, I'm from Leeds, United Kingdom. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not available uh, to attend uh, the ACR conference in person. However, this is the uh, wonderful things about the hybrid conference where I can join my colleagues uh, through online. Uh, today, uh, I'm privileged uh, to be joining uh, uh, to be joined by uh, Dr. Amit Saxena, Associate Professor uh, in Medicine at uh, New York University. Uh, hi, Amit. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. Um, so today we would like to talk about uh, an abstract uh, two, uh, 2081 uh, that was presented at the um, uh, Lightning uh, uh, Lightning Post talk today. Um, so Amit, uh, would you like to tell us about uh, the background of the studies and what were your objectives? Yeah, so, you know, we know that patients that have systemic lupus are at high risk for severe disease from COVID-19. Uh, based on their kind of inherent immune perturbations and also just the fact that they use these immunosuppressants 
Uh, and and those immunosuppressants also can affect the responses to the COVID vaccines. You know, we've seen the decreased vaccine responses in patients who take those types of medications. Uh, and this objective of this study really was to see what the impact of uh, an additional dose or what we call the booster dose of those vaccines was uh, in patients with systemic lupus, particularly because, uh, you know, shortly after most people started having those booster doses, uh, we were hit with that big Omicron wave in New York, which happened in, in from December to February. And so kind of pressure tested, uh, you know, what the vaccine responses were going to be. Uh, and so, you know, we wanted to evaluate how effective those doses were, uh, comparing people who had the booster dose and those who didn't, and also then looking at the serologic changes and, and the response to those vaccines as well. That's great. Um, so just to clarify, that, so majority, so the, the study was done predominantly during the Omicron uh, period. You know, we tracked our patients, you know, from the time that they got the vaccine. So we do have data from before that, uh, but... Uh, but you know, the truth was that there weren't a lot of breakthrough infections in that time period. Really, we only had two breakthrough infections before Omicron. Uh, and then when Omicron came, was we saw the potentially the vaccine uh, evasiveness of that variant uh, led to a large number of cases. Uh, although I think one of the key takeaways of this study was that even though there were a large number of cases, there wasn't a lot of that severe disease that we saw early. Uh, and we really kind of uh, think that that's for the effectiveness of the vaccines overall. Mm -hmm. So would you like to uh, tell us uh, some, some key points of the, the results of your um, study? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, we looked at 163 patients from our lupus cohort uh, at NYU, and um, and we followed them for a mean of 11.2 months afterwards, you know, at least six months after their vaccine uh, or uh, until the time of a breakthrough infection. Uh, and, um, and you know, 125 of those patients had uh, a booster dose. So we were really looking at the comparison between those patients who had it and those patients who didn't. Uh, and what we saw was that, you know, about 22% of the patients that did have that additional dose of the vaccine had a breakthrough infection, while 42% while of, the, of the patients who didn't have the vaccine, the additional vaccine had it. So that was actually a statistically significant to 0.02. Uh, and, uh, and so that tells us that in addition to just helping prevent severe disease, these booster doses were actually helping prevent people from catching um, COVID-19. Oh, fantastic. Um, so just uh, out of interest, um, of those uh, people who did get the um, breakthrough infections, um, so what was the nature of the infection? Was it was it mild or you know, severe hospitalization and so forth? It was mild. Uh, and so we only had two hospitalizations and both of those patients were treated. And, and uh, most importantly, there were no COVID-19 deaths. And again, that's a very big difference to earlier in the pandemic. We looked at the same cohort, our same lupus cohort uh, early in the pandemic and obviously had much more severe disease pre-vaccine. So this data is really encouraging for us to, you know, to counsel our patient, particularly, you know, the the effectiveness of the you know, booster vaccination in protecting our lupus patients. Um, so in terms of um, uh, how do we bring into clinical practice and also what's your um, you know, future research, you know, af after these findings? Yeah, I think what you said is exactly right. I think at least having some strong data to tell our patients uh, that, uh, that, you know, that, that we recommend this and we can actually back this up with data is, is really important. Um, and, you know, and we're just one of many, obviously, uh, clinical studies that have been looking at some of these questions. Uh, and we're seeing the same responses, uh, you know, kind of throughout. And, and, and 
other studies are showing the safety of these booster vaccines and the vaccines in general. So, so just the more information we have, uh, the better we can. We it is to talk to our patients, and you know we're going to continue following this cohort and seeing what happens to them as they develop. Obviously, as we get new vaccines, we'll be monitoring those things as well. And so, you know, we'll we'll keep t- taking a look at this these patients. Uh, th- thank you so much, um, Dr. Saxena, uh, for uh, a quick recap of uh, you know, your, your your findings. Uh, and thank you for all um, for for listening today. Uh, and uh, please uh, follow um, uh, Room Now uh, through um, Twitter, uh, YouTube, uh, and uh, LinkedIn. Thank you. Hi, Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I have an honor today of introducing you, if you don't already know her, to my friend, Dr. Alexis Ogdi. Alexis, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. You are prolific with everything that you do, but one of the abstracts that really spoke to me this year is Abstract 1600. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So this is a study from the Coravitas Registry among patients with psoriatic arthritis who were had uh, failed their first TNF inhibitor and then were switching to a new TNF or switching to a new mechanism of action. So we examined the outcomes over the next six months and then the next two years, and we found that patients who switched to an alternative medic MOA actually did it slightly better. It wasn't a lot different, but it was a little bit different than someone who switched to another TNF inhibitor. So I think this is really interesting because we talk about this all the time, right? And unfortunately, a lot of our decisions tend to be made based on what we can get access to for our patients. But when it comes down to it, how are you treating patients in clinic in an ideal world? Yeah, so in an ideal world, I usually will, if they did really well in that first TNF inhibitor and they were on it for a long period of time, then I'm going to go to second TNF inhibitor usually. But if they didn't do so well or they kind of had a stuttering course, then I might switch to a different mechanism of action. So there's some nuance, you know, that you can't put into a study like a registry study. Well, absolutely. I mean, and I think there's a big difference between loss of efficacy and lack of efficacy, which is really kind of what you're highlighting. Exactly. So when it comes down to it, do you, how long do you tend to wait for these patients to have a response? Again, nuanced, I know. Right. In general, I tell patients I'd like them to try it for six months because if we're switching before six months, there are some people who will continue to respond out to that time. So So I really appreciate the way that you treat patients because I think it's very common in what we do in general for patient treatment. But one other thing that you mentioned today is that there's another abstract, which is also quite interesting. It's abstract 402 regarding opiate use. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the things we're also interested in is how do we get patients feeling better overall? And we know that a lot of patients are feeling well, and there's actually still a lot of patients utilizing opiates, which we know to be bad for many reasons. Um, So in the forward registry, which is a national database for rheumatic diseases, we examined patients with psoriatic arthritis and AXPA, and we looked at the prevalence of opiate use and then how those patients were different and were they being treated differently. And so you might think maybe they're not getting enough of the DMARDs or or biologics, for example, but actually they were getting more. And so they tended to be people who were just not doing as well they had higher healthcare utilization, higher patient-reported disease activity. So these patients, you can tell, are just not doing well. So we need an alternative approaches to getting patients to that lower level of disease activity, that perceived disease activity and better quality of life. So I think perception's a really big deal for our patients. I mean, if they respond and if they feel they're responding, ultimately their own pros, right, patient-reported outcomes tend to be a little bit higher. That's data we're all familiar with, but are we actually capturing it? And I think that's a really clinically useful discussion, and it changes. It's nuanced, as you said. I mean... 
Exactly. So, so is psoriatic arthritis and right. psoriatic <laughs> disease. So. Yeah, and it, it is tricky. And I think sometimes people are maybe quick to reach for the opiates because it's easy. And I think this is the point where we need to slow down and say, all right, what, what else do we have in our toolbox? Because there's many other things that we're not maybe utilizing as much as we could. That, that was beautifully stated. I, there's no other way to really have, have it that discussion without having that discussion. And um, I really, you are my dear friend. And you know, I, I think you have such an amazing plethora, the way that your mind thinks epidemiologically, et cetera. You've gifted that to the ACR amongst other, other <laughs> publications. But what I really think is interesting is the way that you have utilized your background to create this amazing career for yourself. And you have also been involved with FIT, right, the fellows. And so if you had one piece of advice for our fellows in training, what do you think that would be? Persistence. So stick with it. Find something you're passionate about and then don't get off that track. Just stay on the track. You, my dear, are one of the most passionate people I've ever met. <laughs> So much. thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you for giving of your time, your energy, your effort. And as always, follow us on uh, roomnow.com, but also follow me on Twitter at UpToTate and Dr. Ogdi at... Alexis Ogdi. I can never remember my Twitter handle. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn Alexis for sure. O. And maybe it's Alexis <laughs> O. Thank you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, don't worry. Find us on Twitter. We're here for you. And thank you again. Thank you so much.